Welcome to the PharmaCast. This is Ryan Liebenau, your host, founder and CEO of Holden Fitzgerald. We've got a great episode for you today. In fact, it is our inaugural episode, episode number one, which is the topic of stigma and marginalization. And we have an incredible guest with me today, Dr. Jerrica Dodd, and uh, would love to uh, take an opportunity to uh, introduce Jerrica Dodd to you. Uh, Jerrica Dodd has an incredible resume. So uh, we may just uh, wrap up the podcast by me reading her bio, and then we'll just shut it down. No, not really. Uh, but we do have Dr. Dodd on with us right now, so let me just go ahead and uh, read some of this for you. It's uh, pretty, pretty great. Uh, Dr. Jerrica Dodd is a pharmacist, an entrepreneur, coach, and a leader. She holds a Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, a Master of Science in Pharmacy Administration from The Ohio State University, and a Master of Science with a focus in applied pharmacoeconomics from the University of Florida. She completed her pharmacy practice and administrative residency at the Ohio State University Medical Center. Dr. Dodd has been a pharmacist for 21 years and transitioned into full-time entrepreneurship after a 17 career in the pharmaceutical industry in multiple, 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 multiple medical affairs. Uh, she uh, recently did some educational pursuits uh, in a completion of the Nutrition Health Coaching Certificate from the Institute of the Integrative Nutrition. Uh, and currently, she is enrolled in the Institute of Functional Medicine, which we're excited to uh, talk about, not on this episode, but I'm going to bring Dr. Dodd back to talk about functional medicine next month. Uh, she is aiming to introduce a, a functional medicine perspective in the pharmaceutical management of member of patients, and she is currently the founder and CEO of Your Pharmacy Advocate. Dr. Dodd, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we're I'm really excited about this topic today, obviously. Uh, actually, Dr. Dodd and I were actually talking last night, um, kind of reviewing what uh, the topic of conversation was going to be, make sure that we were on the same page. And I we, we agreed that maybe we should have recorded the conversation from last night. Uh, it was really powerful. And so I'm looking forward to having that conversation uh, again at length. And uh, so with that said, I want to... Uh, go into a little bit about stigma and marginalization. As everyone knows, it's near and dear to my heart. A lot of you know my backstory. Uh, we're not going to talk about that today, uh, but certainly there will be links to uh, go to some of the other uh, opportunities for listen-ins uh, as it relates to my backstory as we go through the PharmaCast. Uh, but let's get it started by talking a little bit, Dr. Dodd, about your worldview of stigma and marginalization. So I'll let you take it with that. So thank you. Um, yeah, when you asked me about talking about stigma and marginalization, um, I definitely feel that these are two words that we see quite a bit of um, in our world these days. I think it's, it's, I don't know if it's just par for the course or sign of the time, but I think that we see more and more groups of people, um, but be it their ethnicity, their health, you know, all types of uh, their nationality, all types of reasons that people um, are stigmatized and marginalized. And so when you asked me about having this conversation, I, I thought it was really good because it's probably not um, what you would expect to hear in mainstream pharmacy discussions, but I think it, it really comes down to 
uh, a place where both you and I reside, and that's helping people get better outcomes for their health. And so I think it's it's a it's definitely apropos to have this conversation. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. In fact, you said something to me last night about commonalities and you know being in a place uh, as individuals where seemingly on paper it looks like we're so far apart, but at the end of the day there are so simil- so many similarities that that bring us together to have these types of conversations. Uh, can you share with the audience a little bit more about what we were talking about last night? Yeah, so I I remember when we, you know, first met and we, we got on the phone and we're kind of talking about our backgrounds. And I was saying even the fact that you and I were going to sit down and have a conversation, it's not what uh, mainstream media would pick up in our, in our country these days. It's not um, something that you think of that happens often. I'm, I'm sure it does in, in, in places, but that you and I could sit down and we come from two different worlds. Our, our upbringing, um, as we were talking, we talked about, you know, how, what our differences were, but yet how many things that we could agree on and that we could find that were similar. And so I think that was, you know, even more confirmation for me for us to sit down and have a conversation. You know, we talked about, you, you teased me about my my bio and uh, just even the differences in our education, differences in our families and, and how we were raised and, um, you know, coming from money or not coming from money or having wealth and not having wealth and, you know, uh, parents, you know, intact family versus a divorced family. I mean, like all kinds of just differences but yet, I think it's amazing that at the end of the day, you know, we can still sit down and have a conversation because, as, you know, we're, we're people and, and we have, you know, lots in common, though people wouldn't necessarily think about it when they looked at us or read our resumes. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I'm going to go there. I mean, the reality is, is that when you think about partnerships, when you think about opportunities to make great change, and you think about the fact that what we connected on LinkedIn, what, about a year ago, and it took us about right. a year to really connect. But at face value, you know, I am a white male that came from relative privilege, uh, and you are this incredible, highly accomplished African-American woman. And, and I think that that's what you're getting at. So could talk a right. little bit more about that because I, I, I want us to go, I want us to, you know, call it like it is. Well, sure. This is this, I think this is a, an opportunity for us to dig deep. And I think that uh, I'm going to share some, some things here in the next five to 10 minutes that I think um, we need to consider as it relates to stigma and marginalization. So share with mm-hmm. me a little bit more. Let's, let's go a little bit deeper in, in, into that in and of itself when you talk about mm-hmm what mainstream media maybe wouldn't portray. And I think that that's what you're getting at uh, as it relates to the conversations that people have and us coming back to some similarities of at the end of the day, we're humans. We have this breath. Right. Long. What do you think? 
Right. Well, so as you said, you know, lots of lots of uh, differences between us. You white male, me African American female. Um, you came from uh, a background, or, or at least a family background of privilege. I did not. Um, you know, I I told you last night. I, what I remember growing up is my parents, you know, working both of them working uh, to survive. And you know, my my parents divorced when I was four. I think you um, your your uh, family structure was was not that. Um, and when, when I got to the end of my high school years, it was critical. I mean, I remember, you know, um, becoming a member of my sorority in college. And I remember my father calling and saying, hey, don't forget while you're why you are there, because I don't have money to send you to college. Like I was there on a full scholarship and I had to remember, you know, it's either this is my opportunity because there was no money to, to send me to college. And so, um, you know, even just, you know, from, from really early days, um, I always knew that I had to, I had to succeed. I had to be able to take care of myself because as I saw my parents, you know, work as I was growing up, I knew that they could not, you know, afford to, they needed me to grow up and be able to stand on my own two feet. And so definitely, um, I would say in those regards, our, our past are definitely divergent, if you will. Um, when we talked a little bit about, um, our experiences with mental illness. So I've not personally, you know, had a, um, a mental illness, but I've dealt with it in my family. And, you know, those are some things that I know that when we were talking that we do have some commonality there. And I think one of the reasons why we clicked, so was just knowing that, you know, our feelings around mental illness and stigma and what have you and, and marginalization. I know we're going to get to that in a little bit. Those were, you know, some of the things that I know that we agreed on because we're both passionate about changing that. Yeah. And. And even further into that, I think that when I look at my upbringing, when I look at where I came from, on paper, there was absolutely no reason. And again, many of the folks that are listening today know this, but I think that as we kind of expand into your audience, Dr. Dodd, um, you know, this is going to hopefully impact somebody that's listening right now. But on paper, there was absolutely no reason why Ryan Liebenau should have had the struggles that he did, right? I look at mm -hmm. the what was seemingly a worn-torn 20s of mental health and substance use disorder issues, uh, struggling with those things. Uh, what I, at the time, saw as a real permanent issue, something that I wasn't going to be able to come out of, that I had almost found an acceptance that struggle was going to be specifically struggle with that. It was going to be something that I was going to have to, to roll with the rest of my life that I wasn't going to be able to find any uh, opportunity for freedom. And so I think that when we talk about stigma, when we talk about marginalization, uh, they can hold hands, right? I don't know oh, that yeah. we always can draw comparisons. I don't know that that's always fair. Uh, because every situation is individual. And right. I think that, you know, like I was telling you last night, that when it comes to marginalized population, there 
are populations that are significantly more marginalized than others. And I think that my biggest thing was is that when I came out and I said, look, I, I struggle with mental health issues. Um, I have um, I have a substance use disorder. I'm in recovery. Uh, these are things that I'm going to have to deal with the rest of my life. Um, you know, I take these things one day at a time, but I never right. promise that there won't be a relapse, just like a type 2 diabetic is not going to promise that they're not going to sneak some cake once in a while. We right. take these things once in a while, and we take our health one day at a time, right? So if mm-hmm. you have a chronic disease, if you have something that needs to be maintained, uh, we have to have a, a both a short-term goal and a long-term view that allows us to really change our language. And so I think with that said, let's talk a little bit about your your experience in, or maybe just our experience as it relates to what we've seen as it relates to stigma and marginalization in healthcare specifically, because I think that in a little bit we'll draw this back to you know, what's happening now, uh, right. both in the United States and globally. But for you, uh, you know, share with me, you know, what you're seeing in the healthcare industry as it relates to this. So, you know, when you think about stigma and marginalization, I think that oftentimes they show up in healthcare with the, the in the conversation about healthcare disparities. Uh, I think that, you know, Anybody who is aware of healthcare history, you know, in the last hundred, you know, plus years is aware of how, um, you know, we can, you know, call out the Tuskegee uh, experiment, for example, of how a group of patients, you know, was stigmatized, marginalized, and therefore, you know, had an experiment done that, oh my gosh, you know, who would wish that on their worst enemy where they were, you know, they, they had syphilis and they, they weren't treated and, you know, just, just, and, and there have been other um, examples in healthcare for mentally ill, for, you know, other ethnicities where patients were not treated and, and given the dignity of being human. I think we, you know, we are familiar with the Henrietta Lacks story where without her consent, you know, her cervical cells were were taken and used to be a very viable cell line um, that's even, you know, used today. Uh, and, you know, things that were done that are done to people in healthcare, and, you know, those are all historical examples but I, I not too long ago read an article about how uh, African Americans in hospitals are denied or not taken as seriously with regard to their complaints about pain. And you know, I don't know if the thought is well, well, they can tolerate more. Or they're really, you know, maybe they're you know seeking narcotics or whatever. But these things happen, and unfortunately, um, it's. I think they're hard to, you know, they're isolated incidents that are probably hard to prove, you know, in and of themselves. Yet, you know, we read about them. You read about um, how uh, racism impacts the health of uh, the the ethnicity that's, you know, being treated in a racist manner and how, you know, that can impact their long-term health. 
things that you probably wouldn't even consider, but stigma and marginalization, I feel, go pretty deep and can have long-lasting effects to health, to just your outlook of of being a person in, in just in society. And so these are, you know, high level experiences or uh, examples, if you will, of things that have happened and, to my understanding, still do happen. Think about the definition of being marginalized. It's simply a person or group that's treated as insignificant, right? Right. And if you talk about the definition of stigma, we're really at a place where it's not even just associating something with a level of disgrace, right, or disgust, it's when we see stigma and marginalization combined, right, we see whole populations mistreated. And I think, unfortunately for me, um, I did not see uh, what was happening until very later on in life. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we talked about it last night. I just did not understand. I grew up in kind of a a, a uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant type of world, right? I was not exposed to culture culture in the perspective of being able to understand uh, views that were not re- relatively close to the way in which I was brought up. I just was not seeing those things. Um, I wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, you know, given the opportunity to say, here's option A and here's option B and you decide. Uh, so, you know, I was a freshman in college when I realized I woke up one day and I said, holy crap, I am not the person that I want to be, mm-hmm. at least from a worldview perspective. I need mm-hmm. to find a space where I can support something that is bigger than myself. And I think that, you know, that began the journey of understanding everything from racism to just general intolerance. Uh, And at that time, you know, my freshman in college, I was just getting started, right? I was just getting started with my addiction. Um, I had, you know, not, I wasn't there yet uh, to a place where it was really destroying my life. And so there were some things that I was very arrogant about. But like I said at a a conference a couple weeks ago, if it wasn't for recovery for me, I would still be intolerant. I would still be uh, I would still be at this space where there would probably be bigoted thoughts. I probably would not be in a space where um, I had an open mind. Uh, and it was because of recovery and the people that I came in contact with in that recovery mm-hmm. and seeing that there were other people like the, me that were being stigmatized because we had these issues, mm-hmm. that um, there was a, really an opportunity for surrender to be right. able to look and look, you know, sit down at a table with other people. And see every race, ethnicity, ethnicity, and creed, and color represented at a table. And we all were unique in who we are as human beings, but we were not unique. There was a there was like this significant equality 
and that we shared a similar struggle, right? Right. Right. In substance, you know, in substance use, um, in mental health issues. And that was where the light bulb went off for me. And I completely changed a lot of my views. Um, and it has served me well because yeah. I have found this space in healthcare where, you know, as you know, we just launched Pharmacopia. But, I mean, really what it comes down to is, is that mental and behavioral health is actually a space in healthcare where for many, many years, and I, I, I don't even want to say that it's still happening today, but it is, um, and I'll give you, give you an example here in a second. But we see stigma and marginalization persisting specific to a patient population that they're trying to treat, just like you talked about uh, with the Afri African American community in hospitals and pain management, right? Mm -hmm. And watching, you know, I was just at a facility last week, sat down, and just listened to the language and observed the way in which the patient's mm -hmm. clients were spoken to. Right. right. And I heard words like uh, addict and mm -hmm. abuser and dirty. Right. And I think that sounds pretty familiar, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, why are we so concerned about opioids today? Right. Okay. When at the end of the day, overdoses, the majority of overdoses are not prescription drug opioids, right? Right, right. Heroin, right? It's heroin. It's fentanyl. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's illicit drug use, right? Which, right. you know, maybe we'll have a podcast about Portugal someday and we won't get into that today. But, but I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, and I'm looking at, you know, a lot of people that are struggling with opioid use disorder and I'm hearing the way in which they're being talked to and I'm thinking, wow, I draw some similarities. And then I think about this idea that we have an opioid quote unquote epidemic when maybe it, 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 it maybe it's a crisis, but it's not an epidemic. I mean, if, we don't even need to go to the definition of epidemic to understand what an epidemic is. It's not. Right. But, but my biggest thing is, and I feel very passionate about this, and I want you to comment on this. Don't you think that there's an issue that we woke up one day, saw the community that was being ravaged by opioids and said, where the hell was everybody at when there was a crack problem in the Bronx and the ghetto right. in Harlem? <laughs> yes. And, and you know, Ryan. You, you see what I'm saying? You, know, feel yeah. me, you feel me on that? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because. I also asked the question of where did we learn, you know, as you talk about the way people are addressed and the way they're spoken to. So, you know, where did healthcare professionals, where did we learn this vocabulary of talking to people as if they've, you know, they're, they're nasty, they're dirty, they're, 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 you know, not that they have a, an illness. And I, I think about, you know, I'm in lots of, of groups on, on social media, and I think about, I heard uh, or I read where someone was referring to, you know, how come, you know, we can have resources for add, drug addicts, but we can't have resources and, and get things paid for for whatever the disease state was. And I was so grateful as I kept reading the comments, someone said, why is it one compared to the other? They're both illnesses. 
So why isn't there funding for both, not one over the other or one at the expense of the other? And so I, I agree. And yes, where were these resources or this concern when it was a problem, you know, long before now? I totally agree. And I think that we know why. I think that it's it not even needs to be said at this point. But yeah. I think that my difficulty with the conversation that's happening today is we finally got we finally got into a place where the medical community is willing to, at least for the mo- most part, um, and, and I'm speaking um, specific to addiction. We finally mm-hmm. have gotten a place. To, finally gotten everybody to a place where they can accept the disease model. And now we're having a conversation about, well, maybe it's not really a disease. It's a learning disorder. It's a behavioral health disorder. Yeah, it's really a behavioral health disorder. And I'm thinking, slow down, right? If, Mm -hmm. if, If for any reason we need for it to be a disease model so that the law, so law enforcement doesn't take back that something that we gave them 50 years ago, to incarcerate more people in the United States than every mm-hmm. other developed nation in the world, right? right and that's right. A, that is a public health crisis. That is a health care issue. Incarceration mm-hmm. related to that is a health care issue, right? Uh, and that it persists even more when you talk about a, a marginalized population. And so, uh, you know, what I, I want to kind of pivot to something that I said to you last night. There's only, you know, when it comes to marginalization, have I been marginalized in my own way because of my addiction? Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. no doubt about it. But I can't draw a comparison, right? There's certain comparisons that I can't draw. And so I have this space where, like I said, my worldview changed a long time ago. I kind of had an opportunity to connect with a lot of people that were 100% different than me and develop some relationship that I would have never developed before if it wasn't Mm -hmm. for the struggles that I had. But talk to me a little bit about what you think about, well, I think, you know, we'd go back to this idea that for the most part, you know, white men have a, a, a huge opportunity now to support but not to fight for uh, marginalized populations, specifically in healthcare, and the reason why I say that, and I'm going to just get a lot of heat for this. You have to support. You can support something, and I I can do whatever it is that I need to do to support it, and I will, and I can listen, but it's not my fight, right? I I can't necessarily show up on the scene, or uh, Caucasian males cannot show up on the scene. I don't care what political background you are. You can't show up on the scene and say, "Oh, we woke. We're woke now. We're, we're part of the. We're we're, we're woke, and <laughs> we're here. We're here to help fix it." Right? It's it's really really difficult for me to kind of see this kind of spin, and it's no different than what I mentioned when I talked about you know, the opioid crisis versus uh, the crack issue that we had, particularly in the 80s, where there was mass incarceration, right? And we saw right. what the Reagan's plan did to an entire population. 
And then we see how we're dealing with this now. And, and quite frankly, people are still being incarcerated, even though we're calling it a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the role? And I'm going there. I told you I was going to go there. Where do you see the role of white men in supporting marginalized populations, both outside of healthcare and inside of healthcare? And what is good advice for? somebody like me when we're trying to support something, but understand at the end of the day, you know, we come from a long line of individuals that created this problem in the first place. And so we can't necessarily, we can own our role, but we can't necessarily take over the fight. Right. What what would be your advice to that? So I agree that, you know, every, every cause that, a person is aware of, be they, you know, black, white, male, woman, male, female, every cause that a person is aware of, you can't necessarily, you know, take up that to be your fight. However, I think one thing that you said is, is really key is to one, acknowledge your, your role in, in how we got to where we are. But then I think another is, and no, you may not show up with a, a picket sign or, or whatever the, 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 the fight is, if you will. But I think one thing you could do is ask, how can I help? Because, you know, often it's, it's kind of like when, you know, when, when something tragic happens to someone, Usually we're at a loss for words. We we don't know how to even, you know, provide comfort or whatever, or provide, you know, resources. But I think to just ask, how can I help? Is there something I can do? Say things like, I hear you. I understand you. Um, let it be known that, you know, this is something that you disagree with or, or if it's, a, you know, the way that people are being stigmatized, marginalized. Hey, I disagree with this. And I think those are those will go a long way to starting down that path of supporting, though it's not necessarily the cause that, like I said, you pick up and you're on the front lines fighting. Um, I think that you know we are all called to do to fight our uh, our fight and and do the work that we're called to do in this world. So by no means do I expect you to, you know, throw down the causes that you're you're called to do and go take up something else, but to be aware, to ask, how can I help? I think are great starts. And sometimes helping is listening. Helping is saying, hey, I understand. Helping is supporting financially. Helping is, you know, making connections and, and, and networking. So I think there are lots of things that can be done to help or to support an issue or, in, or a cause without actually you being on the front line of that cause. Yeah, I love that answer because, again, as we were talking last night, I, I realized that sometimes even personally I want to take up a cause simply because I see justice not being served. and. Mm-hmm that puts me in a place sometimes and I imagine others feel the same way where we're doing less listening and we're being impulsive, right? And we're Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. finding that space where we're truly being effective in fighting that good fight, whatever it might be. 
for you particularly as you're listening, and I, and I would hope that people would be inspired just like Dr. Dodd said. It's about taking up, you, you know, the fight that you've been called to, the work that you've been called to, and then do it to the best of your ability. Um, as I said at the beginning of this, we were going to, you know, buckle up and take this for a long ride. So I want to get a little bit more feedback from Dr. Dodd as it relates to personal experience, um, particularly in the healthcare industry, and share maybe a personal experience with us about a situation where she personally felt stigmatized and marginalized um, in the healthcare industry specifically, maybe even, you know, specifically, obviously, in the pharmaceutical industry, as that's been your career for so many years. Yeah, um, there have definitely been situations in my my work experience in in the industry where because you know uh, if you've you know been around pharma, you definitely know that every several years um, things change and you have changing of um, of people in in different roles and and moving and what have you and lots of organizational shifts. And I definitely recall being in a situation where there was an organizational shift and um, the the roles were, were changed and different people were filling different roles. And I was one of those people. And I came in behind a, um, a wonderful colleague. Uh, we, we don't keep in touch often, but when we do, it's like we haven't, we, it's like we've never missed a beat. And I came in behind a colleague who was a white male that had filled a position. And when organization and territory lines were redrawn, he was no longer uh, covering a, a portion of that territory. And, you know, I entered in that role. And the backlash that happened was like, wow, it was very obvious. Um, it was stated in actuality, we don't want her. We want him because they, uh, the, the people that were working with him, uh, the management, uh, liked, liked him. And you'd have to say, well, you know, I don't think they were bold enough to come out and say, we don't want her because she's a woman and because she's African American and we want him because he's Caucasian and he's a male. But it was really interesting how much of a fight was put up. And I, I remember, you know, it was almost like uh, they were really looking for like anything they could to say, see, we told you we didn't want her. And I remember when all of it was happening, I mean, I was, you know, very despondent because I'm like, what, what happened? Like, what is this? And I remember my manager, uh, my director at the time saying, you know, I wish that I had something that I could offer you as far as coaching, but you didn't do anything wrong. He was like, I really, there's nothing I can say. He's like, this is terrible. I don't think that this should, you know, should be this way. And I ultimately, you know, ended up, um, you know, moving on to another position with another company. And I remember that director saying this, this, you know, this should serve them well. This should let them know that you can't just, you know, you can't treat people that way uh, because you don't like it. You know, I hadn't even had a chance to to get into the role and actually, you know, have an impact before it was, you know, we don't want her. 
And so um, those type of things happen um, probably more than we would like. Um, you know, when you're having those conversations outside of work, people would say, oh, you should, you know, you should sue, you should go file an EEOC complaint. And I just never elected to do that because it takes a lot of energy. Um, the world is small. And I just was like, you know, let me just go on and try to find better. But definitely those things happen and they do impact you. Yeah, that's powerful. I am sitting back just listening and thinking, wow, how common that must be. How much yeah. that has impacted so many people. And I'm sorry that that happened. And that's really what I'm thinking is I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But clearly, clearly, it has made you a stronger, more powerful individual. And that is what is to be celebrated because overcoming and the victory story that follows a particular struggle is far more valuable than the struggle itself in many cases. Definitely. And it it causes you to, um, if anything, for me, I've always, you know, been told uh, by my parents growing up that you've got to work extra hard. You've got to be twice as good because in order to just be considered compared to the average. And so those type situations, um, obviously, while they never feel good when you're experiencing them, they they make you and and I hate to to use a word that you know may sound more like jargon, but they make you level up and you're reminded what you're made of. You're reminded that even if someone doesn't see your worth, doesn't see your value, you have to really develop a um, a mental toughness, if you will, because even if someone can't see my value, doesn't mean that I don't have value. And so. Um, Having had, you know, several of several experiences like that, um, and, you know, these are companies that would probably, you know, love to go on record and say that they've got a diversity and inclusion department and, and most most companies do. But, you know, even that, are there really any teeth behind, you know, truly trying to include everyone when you have those departments or are those departments there because it's, you know, kind of a smoke and mirrors thing, but are we really, you know, having the tough conversations and trying to include everyone and not, you know, just looking good on paper, if you would? Yeah, I always question if those departments were developed as a precursor to potential issues that they might have, right, in the in the future. Right. You know, the, as if the insurance company said, yeah, it would probably be good if you developed this division of your company. You're big enough now. Um, you really need to have this because you are completely open for liability in these areas. And that's, at this point, I don't see that not persisting in many industries, but certainly because we're in the healthcare industry, it's important for us to talk about. So I appreciate you being candid and sharing that. Mm-hmm. I would say that, Stigma and marginalization has 
been something that I have been talking about a lot for the last three years. And both in from the perspective of in and from the perspective that I have been impacted from a stigma perspective. I don't know that mm-hmm. I have been necessarily marginalized. And if I have, it was, I was, it was certainly brushed off, but again, I, it's difficult because I, I can't draw a comparison because for me, you know, recovery um, and the stigma that comes along with that, it's very difficult to, you know, to even couple those types of experiences with something like you experienced. But what I will say is, is that once I was in the throes of active use um, and I struggled with a lot of different substances and struggled with a lot of uh, mania and depression and went through a whole gamut of, of treatment programs until I ultimately ended up coming out the other side. But there wasn't kind of first I went in and, you know, ta-da, the light bulb went off and then everything was good for the rest of my life. It took me multiple tries until I got to a place in my life where it was going to be sustainable, where I could be in full recovery. And mm-hmm. then, you know, what I realized was, there was going to be a segment of the population that was always going to treat me as the past person that I was, not the person that I was today or the person that I was trying to become. And really that is the disgrace. Um, that is in my life where uh, stigma has persisted. And I see it on a regular basis in the healthcare industry, particularly in mental and behavioral health facilities. We have a huge issue today um, related to stigma and marginalization in psychiatric units. Mm-hmm. Some really, actually, really, really dangerous places to be in many cases yeah. uh, for for patients. And Ooh. it's very, very difficult for me to even begin to verbalize some of the things that I saw you know, during my time of struggle and being hospitalized because you wouldn't even think that those things would happen. And again, I am in this place where I've taken complete ownership of the fact that I came from privilege. I am a white male on paper. Everything should be easier for me. I should be able to show up, talk a good game, dress the right way, get the job, get the, get the business, close the deal. And for much of my life, um, even during my struggle, a lot of things came very easily to me. And I didn't know why until very recently. I mean, as far as being alive on the surface for 37 years, it's pretty recent since I realized why things were so easy. I mean, granted, I may be good at what I do, but there were some, some advantages that, that came along simply by, by virtue of where I came from, what I look like, and Mm -hmm. the education that I had and the fraternal opportunities that kind of came from being a part of where I came from. But I never thought about it before, right? Right. And so, like I said, it wasn't until recently, and then having this conversation with you, that I really said, yeah, 
this conversation about stigma and marginalization is a lot different than I thought it was going to be, right? Um, I'm talking to Dr. Dodd, and I'm thinking, you know, when I think of stigma and marginalization, it's it's pretty mainstream. And we start having a conversation that totally takes this left-handed turn, and I'm thinking, I have to rethink some of these things for myself. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I have to thank you for some of the things that you've shared with me because it puts me in this space where I can be better because I think that that should be our pursuit. And I, and I certainly want it to be my pursuit to just simply yeah. be better. Well, you know, Ryan, I, I think that that's a, a charge for all of us. We all can be better um, because, you know, as you said, you know, no comparison. And I totally agree with that because, you know, if, so if we just use an example that's, you know, not even related to healthcare, but, you know, if we think about, you know, the person who, uh, the, the person who never got to have children versus the person who never got to be married versus the person who never had a date. So it's a big deal to each one of those people. It's, it's a big thing in their world if that was something that they wanted or they desired and it did not happen. So, but to compare and be like, well, you know, you got married, but I never even had a date or you had a child, but I never even got married. Like it, it, you can't make a comparison. And so I think that was a very good point to say there is no comparison because that's real for you. That's real for me, though they may look different. Like there, there's no scale that you can even put that on to say, well, this is worse or that, you know, it, 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 it's, it's just not a good thing at all. And and there is no better, worse, you know, there's no scale to it. So I agree with that. No comparison. Trauma is trauma. And yes. when a person goes through trauma, regardless of what it looks like um, on the outside, uh, it is 100% impactful to that particular individual. And I think that that is something that we can continue to have a conversation about in healthcare, which is individualized care. And I I know that you and I are going to have a conversation about individualized care, precision medicine, functional medicine on another another PharmaCast uh, probably here in the next month. But again, as it relates to mental health, as it relates to behavioral health, in the healthcare industry, we really haven't done a good job of individualized care and a lot of the stigma that comes along with just being in recovery or not being in recovery Mm -hmm. or being in partial recovery, both for me and for individuals that I share my life with, that I do life with, um, that is a conversation that we have, that you have to find a space and i and i i know i shared a, a speech that I, I i gave called live out loud with you right and something that was always really important for me and i think that the way in which we start to deal with stigma and marginalization both in and outside of healthcare is getting to a place where as humans we can be transparent number 1 Number two, we can be honest about where we're at and right. that be okay. Mm-hmm. And number three, tell our story, right? Yes. Because our story, the, you know, I, I always say that 
you could bankrupt me. You could take away everything from me. I could lose everything, but you know the one thing that you couldn't take away from me? You can't take away my story. My story, yeah. And I think that that is a powerful, powerful thing. Your story is as important as my story, as important as the next man, woman, child story. And I think Mm -hmm. that sometimes we miss that point when we're having these conversations about what's happening in society and stigma and marginalization is a massive point of it. I'll let you have the last word. So, yeah, I agree that story is one thing that I know um, helps people connect on a heart level because when you sit and you listen to someone else's story and if you can suspend judgment, if you can suspend preconceived notions and just hear that person share their story, I, I truly believe that that's how we as human beings can connect And so even if I don't know what your life has been like, or I don't, I can't relate to that, but I can sit and hear your story and and you mine. And I think that was, you know, one of the things that was really remarkable when we talked, we, you know, we'd never had a conversation and then we talked and it was like, wow, he's got a story. I mean, like, and, and, and then when I, when I watched you, tell your story it was even more like I was taking notes and it was it was very compelling to hear a story that I couldn't necessarily personally relate to but I didn't have to I could relate because I could hear your heart when you were telling your story and my heart my heart could hear your heart and so that to me was powerful I I I talked to you know coaching clients that I have all the time about telling your story because you will be amazed at how many people will or won't say, oh my gosh, I can so see myself in that story or I can so, I can relate or, you know, this happened to someone in my family or or what have you. And I think it's one of the, the great unifiers is to be transparent, be vulnerable and to share your story. 